Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And here we go. Another election night in America as we are inching our way much closer now to the midterm elections which will, of course, decide which party either retains or reclaims the majority in the House and the Senate. Now, polls just closed moments ago in New York, which is one of three states holding the final primaries of this month. And frankly, all eyes are on the race that has pit two of the most powerful Democrats in this country against one another. Now, how powerful? Well, one does chair the House Judiciary Committee and the other the House Oversight Committee. Both have been in Congress for three decades, and tonight, one of them, or maybe even possibly both of them, could actually lose their seat. So why are they even against each other for the very first time? I'll tell you one word, redistricting. But it's not just the map they're up against. And into this mix, you can add the long-shot lawyer, Siraj Patel. And speaking of political shots that are taken, let's just say this campaign has turned up quite a bit. I mean, politics, especially in Washington, D.C. and beyond, has a funny way of turning friends and colleagues into rivals. And that is what's happening here. Maloney has allegedly been saying to people that privately that Nadler is, quote, half dead, her words, allegedly, and is publicly thrashing him. I think that you should uh, read the editorial in the New York Post today. They call him senile. They cite his uh, performance at the debate where he couldn't even remember who he was, who he impeached. Oh, the old political, they, they say, some say, others would say, people say. Well, his response? Well, here it is to CNN. That's obvious. It's obviously not true that I'm half dead. It's obviously not true that I'm senile. But I'm not going to comment on other campaigns. Let them flail away. Again, a Washington D sort of comment in and of itself. But meanwhile, in Oklahoma, CNN projects Republican Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen defeating the former state House Speaker T.W. Shannon in the runoff race to replace the retiring Republican Senator Jim Einhoff. And a huge blowout in the battleground state of Florida. Democrats have picked their nominee to take on the current Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, in November. And CNN is projecting that they chose the former governor, make it the former Republican governor, Charlie Chris, far outpacing his most formidable opponent, Nikki Freed, Florida's agriculture commissioner. Now, Chris used to be a Republican, as I mentioned, but now he's the Democrat. He's going to take on and figure out if he's going to go head-to-head with DeSantis, the Republican viewed as, frankly, one of the biggest threats to Donald Trump in 2024. Let's turn now to CNN's Phil Mattingly at the very magic wall. He is closely monitoring it all. Phil, what are you seeing? 
You know, Laura, we already got the answer on the likely next senator from Oklahoma. We know who Democrats have selected to go up against Ron DeSantis in Florida. There's a few House races in Florida we're keeping an eye on, too. But really, as you noted at the top, everyone is focused here on New York City, where there are a myriad of races in a worst nightmare scenario for Democrats, because this wasn't what they wanted. This isn't even the day that they wanted this pro, uh, this primary to happen. However, when their, uh, their new redistricting proposal was thrown out by a state judge, they were put in positions like this, which, as you know, Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler, two liberal stalwarts in the House for more than three decades, two critical committee chairs in that House Democratic Caucus going up against one another. Obviously, Siraj Patel pushing the idea of change, generational change, is in there as well. Here's what you need to watch tonight. The polls have closed. We'll start to see results come in in a little bit. You're going to need to watch... Jerry Nadler, coming from the Upper West Side, actually has about less of his district moving over into the new 12th district. However, it is a high-propensity voting district. And keep this in mind when you think about Carolyn Maloney and her Upper East Side constituency. She has run twice against Siraj Patel in primaries. One of those primaries, the last one, she only beat Patel by about 3,000 votes. The big question going into this is, will he siphon on, off votes from Carolyn Maloney and create a pathway for Nadler, who has been endorsed by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, was endorsed by the New York Times as well, giving him a bit of a boost in what, as you noted, has been a very, very ugly primary over the course of the last couple of weeks. As I mentioned, there are a myriad of races that Democrats are watching. And another one they're really keeping an eye on is right here. We're going to the new 10th district. You may recognize the individual up top from the impeachment hearings. That's Dan Goldman, former federal prosecutor. Uh, he's an heir to the Levi Strauss throne. So he's had a ton of money go into this race, really blanketing the airwaves here. Uh, obviously served as a top investigator for the House Impeachment Committee for Donald Trump. He has used that, particularly. You're starting to see votes come in right now. Dan Goldman, uh, about 1,200 votes ahead at the moment. It's a big field. It's a big field with a number of progressives in it who have been attacking Goldman, but with Goldman's money, with his profile, and with what we've seen in Mar-a-Lago that he's cited to capitalize on, that he can investigate Trump, perhaps that gives him a bit of a boost. Watching those two, many more throughout the course of the night. It's going to be a busy night. When these start to light up, Laura, you know, that's when it starts to get fun. We get to start counting and all the name-calling and insinuations and the things people may have said that I'm going to repeat as if it's my own words. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. This is what matters the rest of the night, Laura. It'll become the ever so magical wall at that point. Bill Mattingly, we'll check back in with you. There's big news this hour. Thank you so much. And here with me right now to talk about these things are political experts to break down tonight's primaries and so much more. Democratic 2020 presidential candidate John Delaney, the former National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris 2020 campaign, Ashley Allison, and former Special Assistant President George W. Bush, Scott Jennings. I'm so glad to have all of you here and feel free to claim all the different phrases as your own. I appreciate it tonight. You know, look, we're going to focus on New York initially because I got to tell you, this was something they did not see coming. And they're sort of um, on their bingo cards. The idea that these two, three decade long members of Congress are going to go at each other, vying to actually keep their jobs. And this is really in part something that Democrats may have shot themselves in the foot with, right? I mean, they tried to go toe in toe and think, well, if you can gerrymander, we can too. Yeah, it unfortunately backfired. I mean, I think when you see a Nadler and a Maloney running against each other, it's unfortunate for Democrats. And the tone in which this race has turned, they were friends. They worked Mm -hmm. together. And they don't really have a lot of political ideology that is different. The thing that I think is interesting, though, and it's really too early to tell, the likelihood is that uh, Chairman Nadler probably will pull it out. But you have a Patel. And if I'm a new voter who might be new in this district, I'm going to be like, 
well, I do want generational change. Mm. I'm sick of Washington. And these two folks who have been there for 30 years are going at each other's neck. Maybe I'll try this new guy. Um, so Democrats did shoot themselves in the foot. It's not just in this district. It's in other districts that we see that, you know, are pitting two Democrats against each other. And so it's unfortunate. And we'll see what happens tonight. Before we go further, I want to hear your voice. But the idea we actually have some numbers in and you you said you thought that Nadler might pull it out here are the numbers right now. We've got what, 66 percent of the votes that are in and he's leading 55. That's actually a pretty big margin yeah. over Maloney and certainly over Patel as well. But we have a little bit longer to go. What, what's your comment? Yeah, I, I served with both uh, Jerry and Carolyn Maloney. Mm-hmm. Um, and their voting records, I bet, are almost identical. So there's very little space between these two. I think, uh, you know, the projection is that Jerry's going to win. That's what people have been saying. I mean, these are small neighborhoods. But I think the generational point, I think, is a really interesting point because I think things are changing a little bit in the Democratic Party. And I think the president is changing things. I mean, the president's had a great run. Mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer's had a great run. Nancy Pelosi has had a great run, particularly in the last year. And the, you can't really run on generational change as much when you see this stunning success that President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer are putting up on the board. And I also think the president is kind of showing the Democrats that the way to govern and lead is with common sense, kind of more moderate positions, a bipartisan approach. So I think you're seeing a bit of a change in the Democratic primary voters than we saw in the last several election cycles, when generational change was a huge push. And it's important. There's no question. So maybe it's more successful to have that platform if you don't have legislative victories in Washington. You can kind of say, hey, as a Democrat, you're not getting enough done. Is it kind of that double-edged sword? Well, President Biden is winning right now. Right. I mean, he's had a stunning run of legislative successes, historic successes. And I heard you smirk. (laughs) But he has. I mean, by any measure. How did he do it? He went bipartisan and he moderated And I think Democrats are suddenly saying, maybe that's how we win. Maybe this is how we govern. So I think you're going to see a change. The last several election cycles on the Democratic primary have been who could go the most extreme on policy positions. I think the president started out that way. He pivoted, and he's been a huge success. You're not convinced. I went, you went from like a, a smirk to com, almost like a faw just now. And yes, well, you said, that is a crossword word you can use later on. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, you said Joe Biden is winning by any measure. Well, I'll give you a measure. He's got a 40% approval rating. I mean, the, you know, 80% of the country thinks we're off on the wrong track. These are not winning measurements. <clears throat> on this New York race, Jerry Nadler's closing argument was like he was a character in a Monty Python movie. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and I just, the, yeah. the, 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 I, these are two of the nastiest liberal partisans in the United States Congress. You know, you serve with them. And these people are the most liberal and the most partisan. And you see their true colors come out. One of them's going home. Looks like it might be Maloney. From a Republican perspective, that's good for the country. What you said about Patel, though, I find interesting because I hear Democrats all the time talking about fresh faces, generational change, new ideas. Let's welcome diverse. We had all that in Patel, and he's bringing up the rear. So I I just wonder if this is a Democratic talking point that the voters don't actually agree with because you got two old, white, liberal, septuagenarian, nasty partisans duking it out, and the fresh-faced guy is bringing up the rear here. Just because somebody doesn't win their first race doesn't mean that the party isn't ready for change. Well, it's his second time. His second time, yeah. Yeah. yeah, fair. But it's a new district, right? And I would say that the district is a more wealthy, more white, predominantly Jewish district. I mean, it's not, um, it's not the most diverse district of New York City, I would say. 
I mean, let's go. I, I, I will take your point if we go down to the 10th district where we look at Mondaire Jones and Goldman. That's Brooklyn. Uh, that's Brooklyn. Um, Goldman is potentially going mm-hmm. to pull this one out. Now, it's not necessarily because the party doesn't want change. It's because there's a lot of progressives running, which means that the party right. is moving because we're bringing more people in that have progressive ideas to move this country forward. But in the field, I, think, does. I will just say, though, on your point, Joe Biden had more young people turn out and vote for him. Mm-hmm. He had more people of color turn out and vote for him. And that is how he won. Mm-hmm. And he has to keep promises. And the things that he is doing, he never ran as someone who was so to the left. And the policies that he is running is not to the left. Abortion is not a left issue. It's an issue that people agree with. Minimum wage is not an issue. It's people in the five states, like my home state of Ohio, they agree with. Child care is not a, a left issue. Every woman has a, could have a child. These are issues that are not left issues. They're issues that change the country. And I think that's where the Democratic Party is going. And the Republicans, he's not able to do it by, by, with bipartisan. So many of the Republicans voted against the Inflation Reduction Act that we know will help right. our country and we don't know worry. will help. Don't worry. He did, he did do several it, big bi- I mean, let's face it. He did chips. That was a big yes. deal. Bipartisan infrastructure, mm-hmm. big deal. Gun safety legislation, big deal. Veterans health care, these are big deals. I agree with you. But he is fulfilling his promises. Yeah. On climate, on health care. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but I think the thing about the Nadler and Maloney race, I mean, these are two super incumbents. So that is hard. That's I mean, hard it's hard to, to be one incumbent, yes. let alone two. And they're not nasty people. They're actually very they're nice very good people. people. Uh, oh, wait, and they're you, you, good wait, public you're servants. At, are you looking at what they're saying about each other? You're well, telling me this isn't the nastiest race going on. I just know them right as now? people, and I, you well, know, I, did, not, well, I, just, I just read what I see. Whatever's in the, in the New York Post, I'm not going to necessarily take that as the gospel <laughs> of their character. But the point is, this is a tough race for a incumbent. Yes. I mean, for a non-incumbent to to run in. But I do think, look, I think the polls are changing. We're seeing in the Senate races, we're seeing in the House races, the progress the president's making, it's starting to get into the electorate. His numbers may lag, but we'll see where they are in a couple months. And we'll also see where we are in the conversation in a couple of minutes after a quick break. Everyone stick around. We'll check back with the results in and talk to them as soon as they come in. Ahead, new revelations about classified documents found at Donald Trump's home by the National Archives, get this, months before that FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. And this is information first put out by one of the ex-president's liaisons to the archives that some argue could backfire on Trump himself. So why was the letter put out by a Trump ally? Well, we have it for you next. So here's a question. Did one of Trump's allies actually further implicate the former president in a potential crime? I mean, after all, it was this letter that Trump ally John Solomon disclosed last night. Yes, he disclosed last night. They revealed alarming new details about those 15 boxes of materials investigators received back in January. That's not what we were talking about before of the most latest execution of a search warrant, but back in January. Now, the May 10th letter outlines how Trump took more than 700 pages of classified documents, including top secret materials containing national security information, and that Trump lawyers sought to delay the FBI and others in the intelligence community from obtaining those documents and actually even doing a a damage assessment of what actually might still be out there. And they did so by claiming executive privilege, that very same claim that Trump says should now afford him a special master to review the seized documents and determine if any of it should ever be returned. 
Now, I want to get some perspective right now from my fabulous new panel, several top political and legal minds, conservative attorney George Conway, former chief of staff to the Homeland Security Advisor under Trump, secretary, excuse me, under Trump, Miles Taylor, and former deputy assistant attorney general, Elliot Williams. Glad to have all of you here and your, your thoughts on this issue. I mean, first of all, um, George, why give the letter out there? I mean, it actually outlines a lot of what you've done wrong. Why would you front that? And by you, I mean them. I, it's incomprehensible to me. I mean, basically, that and the motion he filed yesterday uh, are essentially admissions of guilt. Yeah. And I, it's inexplicable to me, other than that he's, he has, you know, we have a deranged client and bad advisors, both legal and, and political. And, and I, that's the only explanation I have for it. But he is, he is basically, what he should be doing with this documents case is what he did in the New York Attorney General case, which is pleading the Fifth Amendment and keeping his mouth shut. Or maybe asking for that special master a lot sooner, right? I mean, the idea of yeah. saying to themselves, hey, it's been two weeks and more than a day, right? And actually, could you not look at what I gave you two weeks ago? And by gave, I mean, actually, you took from my own, own home. Yeah, so look, to clarify and to add a little bit onto what uh, George is saying here, what the letter does is it admits, number one, that they knew they were either classified, uh, sensitive, top-secret documents, uh, and number two, continued to have them in their possession, right? So the president, and what the what the letter also lays out is the sheer number of times the National Records Administration tried to get uh, the president, the former president to turn the documents over. And so I think there's four times or so they go back and forth. Which and to me extended. tells me, Elliot and guys, that you can't really play the victim no. if you are having the negotiation and back and forth that most people would and, never and get. Think, and that's even that's sort of a prudential point, sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, you shouldn't do that. The simple fact is legally you can't do that because a big part of the statute is being able to establish, did you know what you were doing was a crime? They knew these were sensitive documents, yet still kept them in the president's possession. And even worse, Elliot took what George said and raised it. I'm going to take what Elliot said, and I'm going to raise it even higher. Are we playing poker? We're playing poker poker. here at the table tonight. All right, okay. The stakes get higher for Trump because one of the things that's been overlooked in the reporting is that according to multiple sources, Trump went through the boxes by hand in late 2021. So let's break that down. Trump personally looked at these documents. Multiple people can potentially testify as witnesses to that fact, and he did it last year. That is very, very bad. There is no fall guy here. There's going to be, you can't dump it on Meadows. He's not going to, there's no Alan Weisselberg here. Mm. He did this. His fingerprints literally and figuratively are on these documents. And, And we have not heard a defense. We have not heard a single coherent defense. The only one I could possibly posit would be that he, you know, lacks the literacy skills to understand what was in the boxes. But, of course, all you need to see is that they were confidential, top secret, and he was told multiple times and to by clarify, but, but And also to clarify, an important point here that sort of gets lost in the week, you know, when we, when we yeah. use terms like classified – Okay, that might be someone's social security number. It may not be something that, that's a national security mm-hmm. secret. There's another class of documents we're talking about here that are TSSCI, top secret, you know, a secure um, compartmented um, uh, yes. information, right? It's very uh, sensitive information. Um, there is never a circumstance or a universe in which it, involved, it, it belongs in a private home, even if you are a former president of the United States. These are in where uh, there are regulations on the kinds of windows that can be on the room that it can have, oh, the kind of lock, I mean, how but, it can be but, shredded. These, these uh, Hold on that. I want to play because we're talking about what could possibly be the defense. I mean, Solomon, who was his ally, was actually on Bannon's war room today. Let's listen to what he had to say. 
Well, listen, when, when the raid occurred, the Biden White House acted like they didn't know what was going on. They were just as surprised as the rest of the American public. But the truth of the matter is the Biden White House, its general counsel's office, Joe Biden himself, was at the ignition point of this investigation. Buy that, Miles? No, I, look, I don't buy it. I mean, the, the, the reporting's come out that the Biden White House actually has kept, kept a very healthy distance from what documents have actually been found, and they're letting the Justice Department run the investigation. If there's other evidence to the contrary, you know, I, I would second guess that, but I wouldn't second guess that. But, you know, one other thing I want to note that Elliot just said about these SAPs, though, these special access programs, for Americans who are trying to understand all the bureaucratic speak in this, this is what we call code word programs. The code word programs I was read into, some of them, I wasn't even allowed to say the code word to other people. They were unacknowledged programs. This is the highest level of classification that exists in the federal government. Those are not things that a president of the United States has a standing order to declassify when he walks out of the office. But even then, classification doesn't matter under some of these statutes. Right. 793, the, the, the um, Espionage Act basically says it's, all it has to be is sensitive defensive information that could be useful to an adversary. It doesn't require any particular level of classification. And the bottom line is, I mean, to really take a multiple steps yeah. back, these documents were stolen. They're stolen documents. The fact that they are sensitive, that they are SCI documents, t- top secret documents, adds to the weight of whether to prosecute. But they belong fact, to the United States. But they, the point is that they belong to the United States. And about the special master, there's no need for a special master here because the privilege he's asserting is executive privilege. And the president, he's not the president. Well, and also to the point, this idea that the, the, the Biden White House was the evil puppeteer behind this all, it's a little bit of apples and oranges there. The Justice Department was conducting an investigation. The White House necessarily would have made the decision about executive privilege right. because the president holds it. Right. The former president doesn't. So he's sort of... But he was dealing with NARA They're capitalizing on the fact that if you have enough talking points, you can conflate anything Absolutely. and make it make sense. Right? Well, the no. idea of... All this together, and I'm going to tell you right now, 20 bucks, I'm going to get Miles to admit to one of the code words and say it on air tonight. I don't know, I don't know how. Rosebud. <laughs> it's coming up. It's, it's coming up. I got a lot to say on that and point. And if he did that, they would, they would basically, the FBI I'd would be, be in here prison. by the end you, of the show. I would you be would in prison. prison. I, I, I would go back I, to the Justice Department just to prosecute. I got to squeeze one thing in, though. George started off this segment by saying, who are these lawyers? And... I got to tell you, one of Trump's lawyers is someone who was planted by the White House to work for us Mm. at DHS. And I'm going to tell you, this is a person I had a lot of unease about being in the room when we were discussing very sensitive issues. Why? I I can't believe that's who's now advising the president. It's it's someone who, these MAGA types who were planted in the department are the people who would have driven off the cliff for the president. You don't want your lawyer to drive you off the cliff. You want a lawyer that steers you away from the cliff. This is the type of person that will do and but say those lawyers what won't Trump work has. for him. The only, the only lawyer, <laughs> the only lawyer I want. Home, he said, but who, is it, who are you talking about? Uh, Christina Bob is one of his lead lawyers on this. She worked at the Department of Homeland Security. A very nice person, not the person I would have litigating this type of case for an ex-president the only, of the United the only, States. The only lawyer you want is Laura Coates. That's, uh, there we that's go. Sorry, my, There's too many lawyers my, at this my table. My fee is yeah. really too high uh, for that. No, I'm just kidding. George Conway is much higher. Oh, uh, just George Conway is much higher. <laughs> Everyone, Elliot Williams, thank you so much. George, we'll leave it on that. Miles, thank you. Stick around as well. We're keeping an eye on primary results as they are coming in. In New York, with 66% of the vote in, Congressman Jerry Nadler leads Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney with 56% of the vote. 
Meanwhile, amid current threats to members of the FBI and the rise of violent domestic extremism, a verdict has been reached in a trial for the two men you're seeing right now, accused of plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. We're going to talk about it next. All right, we have a new projection, and it's out of New York. Gerald Nadler will win his primary against Carolyn Maloney and Siraj Patel. I want to bring back in our political experts, Ashley Allison, John Delaney, and Scott Jennings. I'm assuming there aren't really big surprises here that Jerry Nadler pulled it off. You don't think so? No. I mean, this was projected. He had Chuck Schumer's support. He had the New York Times. This is not a surprise. That's all you need. Well, I don't know if that's all you need, but he also has a great record as an incumbent, as does Carolyn Maloney. This was a tough race. Neither of them wanted this race. But then who steps up in terms of the chair of the oversight? It's a pretty powerful position. And that's what Democrats have to kind of think about what's happening next, right? Yeah, Yeah. I'm not sure who takes that role because she was, I mean, to Karen Maloney's um, credit, which is really ironic that it's redistricting that is like making her, she was a champion for the census. She did so much in the state of of New York in 2020 to make sure that every single person, not just in her home state, but in the country what's counted, and now redistricting is the thing that gets her booted um, from her seat. So I, I thank her for all the work that she has done, but we'll see who takes that seat. Does that validate for you the idea of this uh, notion, I think you were alluding to before, about sort of a, the identity crisis of where the Democrats want to be? The idea of a younger generation, more progressive, Nadler, I mean, obviously around the same age as Carolyn Maloney, different than the person Siraj Patel. Does that validate the thought back that, look, this was predictable because the Democrats don't know what they really want? Well, I, I just, I feel like we hear one thing out of the Democratic, you know, opinion leaders about how they're, the, you know, fresh face, new leadership, progressive leadership. And then you get into a race like this and the person who represented that uh, came in a distant third. Now, I know districts are drawn for, you know, various reasons and this district may not have supported that viewpoint, but it is a common Democratic talking point that they are the, the young party, the diverse party, the fresh new idea party. And they're sending Jerry Nadler back to Congress and Carolyn Maloney in second place. So, you know, for me as a Republican, I don't really care which one of them goes home. I'm glad one of them is going home. (laughs) And uh, regarding the Oversight Committee, I think the Republicans are going to win the House. And the next chairman of Oversight is going to be my hometown congressman, Jamie Comer from Kentucky. And so whoever the Democrats put in there have a have a lot on their hands because he's well, a tough guy. Well, we shall see about that trajectory. There's a lot more to happen between now and then. But I want to travel for a second before we comment more. I want to go down to Florida. As you know, we know that, of course, Christ is the person projected to be now the, the Democratic candidate who will go toe-to-toe against Ron DeSantis. Um, he was once a Republican. He then was an independent after he lost to Marco Rubio, and then now he's a Democrat. I'm old enough and young enough to remember a time when political flip-flopping was like the worst thing you could do and try to be successful in office. Why has it worked for him here? Well, I served with Charlie Crist. I actually also served with Ron DeSantis, so I know them both pretty well. I mean, Charlie Crist is an incredibly skilled politician. I mean, he's a gifted politician. To your point, very few people could do what he right. did. I mean, he was a statewide Republican governor in Florida. And, and Florida's a tough state. I mean, they have three or four big media markets. So he was very successful as a Republican. And then he won a Democratic primary for our congressional seats, which tend to be very partisan elections. So he's a very skilled, very common sense, kind of moderate politician. He was that way when he was Republican. He was that way now that he's a Democrat. So I just think he's very skilled, and I think he's going to give the governor... You know, the governor's 
popularity is declining, which happens. You wouldn't you, know, but you wouldn't know that from the conversations right, around. Right, but it happens. Though. Governors suddenly become very unpopular in their state when they start running for president, mm. because they become more partisan. Right. Typically, when governors are popular, it's because. They're moderate, they're consensus builders, they're getting things done. But that's, that's not why DeSantis is popular. I think it's well, the opposite, right? That well, he, he is a partisan. He, listen, he, he didn't start particularly partisan, actually. He did some good environmental stuff out of the blocks. Yeah. And then I think with COVID, when he was being compared to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, they kind of had their rivalry, and he suddenly kind of stepped into this national, political, cultural warrior that he's become. And I think his numbers in Florida are going down as a result. Speaking so it's Florida, going to be interesting. Well, speaking of Florida, thank you, um, Val Demings, is, is you know, somebody you can't pigeonhole as if you're a Democrat or someone trying to um, undermine her campaign. I mean, she's not somebody you can say, oh, this is somebody who's going to be anti-law enforcement. I mean, she's a very, very police chief at one point, yeah. a chief uh, sheriff. I mean, this is somebody you can't really pigeonhole, but she's got to run in Florida which is, you know, obviously those three major media markets, it's distinct in ways that other states are not. How does she have to run for November? I think she needs to be herself. And I think she needs to focus on Florida voters and not become larger than life and make people start putting projections on her that if she wins this race, she can be the first black female president. No, that's not what she's running for. She's running for Senate. She has a law enforcement background. She comes from a working class uh, family. She can relate to black voters. She can relate to women voters. She can relate to young people. She can relate to white voters in that state. And she's doing that. And that's why when Val Demings first put her name out there, people thought she would be blown out the water and we wouldn't even know what we're talking about. But she's now up by four points and she could actually pull this off. Now, the one thing I will say is that the Republican machine in Florida will outspend her. And so she's going to need to fundraise. Democratic donors are going to need to go in and get behind her and let her run the race that she can win. But I'm not counting her out, and I think she has a long political future. That's, well, there's we'll there's one really see. good point. There's a great point there, because you're right. She's a terrific member of Congress, and she, she, she's a very good candidate. But what happened six years ago when Patrick Murphy was running against Marco Rubio, that was close for a while, and then the Democratic Party stopped funding Patrick's That's her point, though. Race. The idea of funding. And we have to make, Democrats have to make sure that they support her in this race because you're right, it's tightening. Well, we will see. Everyone stick around. We're going to continue the conversation. And we'll be right back with another big story. A guilty verdict is in for the plot to kidnap Governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. What does that mean for the efforts to stop domestic terror nationwide? We're going to talk about it next. So one of the highest profile domestic terrorism cases came to a close today. Remember this? It was an elaborate plot by a group of men to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer at her vacation home. They even planned to detonate explosives to try to disrupt the police response and distract him. Now today, jurors convicted Adam Fox, the ringleader of that plot, and his co-conspirator Barry Croft. They were also convicted of one count of conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction. And now they both face up to life in prison. It's a turn of events we should note because it's what's happening on the backdrop here, right? One, this trial was a redo. Back in April, two of their alleged co-conspirators were actually acquitted in the kidnapping case, but the jury could not reach a verdict for the two men we mentioned today, Fox and Croft. And the judge then declared a mistrial. Back with us, George Conway, Miles Taylor, and Scott Jennings. Look, 
a lot of the chatter surrounding their defense, because it was a mistrial and a hung jury the first time, has been about the FBI and trap them. This was them trying to punish them because they didn't like their history of talking badly about law enforcement online. It turned into kind of a free speech meets distrust of law enforcement meets modern day conversations. How do you see it? Yeah, I mean, look, right now the defense has tried, you know, had tried to make it look like these were a couple of lazy pot smokers. If you go look at the videos, these guys identified a target. They engaged in pre-operational planning. They networked across online and across borders to advance this plot. And there they were in body armor training with live weapons to go execute this attack. These aren't a couple of lazy pot smokers. These were domestic extremists, and these were indicative of the militants we're seeing across the country who are being recruited into domestic terrorist circles that we need to worry about. I mean, the the jury rightfully made this conviction, and I think it sends a really strong message to the other cases the FBI is investigating. You are being watched. You will be arrested. You will be prosecuted and put in jail. Well, the problem with the three letters you mentioned, FBI, because it was no mistake, I'm sure, that defense counsel wanted to infuse their closing argument to say, look, this is the FBI who's doing this. Remember the backdrop of all of the controversy surrounding the execution of a search warrant in Mar-a-Lago. It's no coincidence they tried to play up on that fundamental mistrust. It's, is it effective in the long run? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I agree with everything that Miles has said. I think probably what really happened here was that the government learned its lesson after the first case on how mm. to try this particular case. And you, as a pro- former prosecutor, can appreciate that. And, and it's an easier case the second time because probably the two guys, I'm guessing here, who were least involved or less important, got off so they could focus. They could focus their fire on these these mm. two who were convicted. And I mean, I read a press report that said basically to the effect that they, the government this time, put a lot more emphasis on statements that these guys had made before this investigation had ever begun, and and they basically blew away any defense of entrapment that these guys were predisposed and that and you know it, entrapment shouldn't be is a hard defense as you know to to, yeah. to establish. You know this case is um, not a law. I'm I'm not a lawyer sitting here, so I'm going to give you my political opinion about about these cases in general. Two things we should all believe: number one, political violence cannot be tolerated; it has to be tamped down; it has to be taken very seriously, no matter who is committing it. So if you are worried about political violence, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, you have to you have to take it seriously, and it has to be dealt with. Number two, we have to trust juries. You know, we've had a lot of in this country over the last uh, year and a half a lot of controversial cases that have enraged one side of the political spectrum or the other. And if you want to have trust in institutions, you have to trust juries. And so when the jury comes back and makes a decision, you have to trust it. And in this case, we had two trials. Juries came up with different uh, decisions in both cases. But, you know, I trust my fellow citizens. They, it's an awesome responsibility to serve on a jury. They, they take these jobs seriously. And obviously they heard what they needed to hear to get to a conviction. What I find interesting about one of the defense arguments raised, and you alluded to this point when the press leads were talking about, is the idea of people were mad about what we've said before. And we come down oftentimes these conversations of, look, you know, this is just big talk. We're just talking, a lot of blustering, a lot of you know, chest thumping here. I've heard that argument a lot as it relates to conversations around what's going to happen, whether it's January 6th or whether it's discussions about the DHS bulletin and, um, and being uh, based on grievance-based politics. At some point, it goes from you don't just sort of brush it off that someone's just talking big talk. That can become a national security threat. It's not just big talk. I mean, if you remember before 9-11, that's when we heard the word chatter. Is after the attacks, is there was a lot of chatter leading up to the attacks and a spike. DHS just last week released a bulletin with the FBI that says they're seeing a spike in chatter 
about civil war and armed rebellion, and that corresponds with a big increase in these cases. These FBI agents are nonpartisan. They don't bring the cases because, as Scott noted, there's a left-wing terrorist or right-wing terrorist they care about. They just care about Americans not being killed by violent criminals. We're seeing a spike in cases, a spike in the rhetoric. Law enforcement's worried, and the public should be too. Well, and that's part of the DHS bulletin and going on and what to talk about here as well. And that actually, the idea of the chatter was part of what the prosecution was speaking about long term. George Conway, Miles Taylor, Scott Jennings, thank you so much. Look, three of America's largest cities were about to move a lot closer closer to allowing safe and legal drug injection sites. But California's governor just said, "Uh uh-uh. The health issues surrounding the debate, up next. Well, in tonight's State of Play, we're discussing the opioid crisis. Milwaukee County is on pace to set a record for drug overdose deaths this year alone. In St. Louis, officials are warning of rainbow-colored fentanyl. Chicago-area counties are suing pharmacy chains for allegedly feeding the opioid crisis. And Dearborn, Michigan, unveiled two public Narcan vending machines. Now, California was poised to unveil its own prevention plan, but it was vetoed by Governor Gavin Newsom. Senate Bill 57 would have created so-called injection spaces where drug users could access sterile supplies and be supervised by medical professionals. Joining me now to discuss is Dr. Amy Mullin, a professor and behavioral health director at UC Davis Health. Dr. Mullin, thank you for joining. You know, when we think about what's happening, frankly, across the country, you can't help but think about this conversation at the intersection of so many things. The stigma as it relates to drug use, the idea of a public health crisis not being recognized, and politics coming into all of this. I wonder what your take is on, in general, of why there's even been a push for these public injection sites. Yeah, thank you. Super important topic. So supervised consumption sites save lives, and they're really an effective strategy to keep people alive. What they do is... They help people who are suffering from addiction to have a safe space um, where if they do overdose, it can be immediately addressed. They're also designed to help get people into treatment. They're designed to really help meet their needs and to be places where people can enter treatment. Um, And they've really shown in studies from other states to be very effective. I'm so glad you've outlined what they are for, because much of the conversation revolves around the presumptions and based on the things they are not. They are not sort of a place to try to encourage drug use, to get people to become addicts, to try to encourage new users. And yet, politically speaking, you often hear people talk about this, in this as, a, as if it's a reality. I wonder why you think Governor Gavin Newsom decided not to support this measure. Yeah, I don't know what his political calculation is, but certainly stigma drives a lot of this. What we know is that addiction is a medical disease and it's treatable medical disease. Um, The data on safe consumption sites show that they do not increase use. They do not bring new users in. They actually have shown to decrease public consumption. They have shown to decrease drug paraphernalia and they have shown to decrease crime. So the evidence is really clear that this is a highly effective strategy to actually save lives, decrease crime. They're good for drug users. They're good for addiction treatment and they're good for the community. Um, So I think that this is a really wonderful strategy that I would like to have seen 
in California. Well, I don't want to put uh, words in Governor Newsom's mouth. I'm going to read to you what the statement that he actually provided as well to this very notion. I'm going to put it up on the screen here because um, he it says it is it is possible, I think he says, um, that these sites would help improve the safety and health of our urban areas. But if done without a strong plan, they could work against this purpose, these unintended consequences in cities um, like Los Angeles, San Francisco and Oakland cannot be taken lightly worsening drug consumption challenges in these areas is not a risk we can take. When you think about that sort of cost-benefit, risk-reward analysis, is he right? I mean, obviously, if it's done incorrectly, it could go against all the things you've just spoken about. Was that risk very real here? So the data wouldn't support that risk. Um, When we look at safe consumption sites in other countries like Canada, they do not increase drug use. They do not increase crime. They're um, really designed to help drug users get into treatment and to keep them alive. Um, They're not bars. These are not playgrounds for drug users. These are medical facilities that help people who are struggling with addiction. And I think the thing that we struggle with as a country is thinking that drug addiction is some moral problem, that it is really an ethical disease that should be criminalized. And really what we need to get to a point is to understand that addiction is a treatable medical illness and people who are struggling with addiction, they need help. And at this, yeah. at this point in this country, we have to recognize what we're doing is not working. Overdose deaths ha- are continuing mm. to climb year over year over year, and it's time for us to take control of this epidemic. Well, let's find a solution. Dr. Amy Mullen, thank you so much. Well, thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.